All right, welcome uh, everyone. I believe this is the fourth episode. How many episodes of this have we even done? This is the uh, fifth, I think. Fifth episode of uh, the show that we call the Smooth Brain Book Club. Uh, we're all dedicated to. Are, are we dedicated? We're dedicated to adding wrinkles to to smooth brains. That's what we're trying to do. I always, uh, I always like. It's hard to keep track. I'm just trying not to think that hard. All right. Well, hey, that works too. Uh, this episode is on the absolutely excellent Frank Herbert classic science fiction novel, Dune. Uh, joining me today, my name is Grant Diedrich. Uh, I've been one of your regular co-hosts. I'm joined by Seth Peterson. Seth, if you want to say hi. Hello. And Seth and I are joined today by a friend of ours, Jack Roach. Jack, if you want to say hi. Hello. All right. I, re- I, re- I read a book. <laughs> First time for everything, baby. Now, he's an expert now. Yeah, it's a monumental achievement. Jack is a resident Dune expert. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was just thinking before starting, you guys are pretty lucky to have me here because I'm one of the rare specimens, like one in like 10 in the entire world, I'm pretty sure, that's read more than one Dune book. Wow. Yeah. That is, I think that's true. I, that's It's not a statistic I've seen before, but I believe it. I mean, you know, the the movie came out late last year, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd always heard about Dune as pretty much just like a standalone book. Uh, and I found out after talking to people, you know, once the movie had come out, it's like, oh, you know, I know you've read the book. Have you read more? Have you gone further? Have you read any of the other series? And they were like, no, I've only read the first one. And that was consistent. I mean, <laughs> Seth, I talked to you about it. Uh, I talked to my brother-in-law about it. Uh, he'd been recommending me Dune particularly the david lynch movie for some reason uh i want to i want my first as my first exposure to dune clarify that the reason the the prevailing wisdom is don't read past the first one (laughs) and i'm here to say maybe read past the first one oh that's a that's actually a ringing endorsement for the dune series for someone to say hey give it a shot i guess (laughs) Um, I, I mean, having not read Dune and not talked to a lot of people about Dune, weirdly, I had also heard kind of the same thing over the years, which was that Dune was an extremely good book that was also extraordinarily weird and that the series as it went on just got weirder. It's still good, but just weirder to the point that everyone sort of had a cutoff point. Where they were like, I can't, I can't keep reading these books, or I'm gonna actually lose my mind. Um, so, it, it, I think that is that is interesting, Jack. That everyone does just sort of have this sort of universal Dune experience of of Dune being this book that's sort of floating out there, simultaneously awe inspiring, but also a terrifying prospect. And I mean, having having read four of them, I kind of understand what people are saying when it comes to the weirdness of it. But like, I don't know, in the later books, it's not like the weirdness of the content is any more like crazy than anything that happens in the first book. It's just the matter of like, 
people hearing that Dune is just like one book, you stop after the first one, that's it, the other books don't exist, just read a plot synopsis on the wiki or something. And they read the wiki and they see the crazy stuff that happens with no context as to what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. But in and context. That, but in context, yeah, everything is still very weird, but it makes more sense. Just like how there's weird stuff going on in the first book, but it makes sense when you're reading it. So I feel like it, the the thing that a lot of people like about the first book is that it fleshes out like a really interesting world. I think the world bu- building is supposed to be a strong point. There's like cool political intrigue within um, whatever the, uh, you know, the space government is called. Do you think the later books, like, do they maintain that level of intrigue and world building? Or is it really a, a more focus on worm body mysticism, <laughs> having a weird worm genital, etc.? Are you talking about the beef swelling by chance? I was thinking a little bit about the beef swelling, yeah. Okay, well, you can't mention beef swelling without explaining beef swelling. So there's a chapter in the third book uh, where a character, and I won't say who it is, just mm-hmm. for spoilers sake, oh, I suppose, sure. yeah. um, is captured by an enemy force and is forcefully given hallucinogenic drugs. Mm-hmm. In his hallucinations that follow, uh, he sees a pretty lady. And this pretty lady uh, gives him, quote the book, a an adult beef swelling in his loins <laughs> fellas who hasn't been there yeah i mean am i right my dudes <laughs> uh but anyway to go back to seth's question it's a little bit of column a a little bit of column b and it really depends on the book that you're reading um because there's still a lot of like politics so a lot of like world building that is done but it's a lot less so i would say um Mm-hmm. And again, it really depends on the book, though, because the second book, Dune Messiah, is almost entirely character-driven. Uh, it basically just takes what the first book establishes and just continues on. Because I suppose to kind of jump ahead into the structure of the first book, it's split up into three sections. Mm-hmm. And it's really confusing because we're talking about the first book dune right but then within the book there are three books yeah that actually um i was trying to explain dune to one of the kids i work with at my job who and he had read it already and so we were just sort of having a conversation about it and i was like well i'm i only want to read the first dune book right now and he said well why do you only want to read like a third of the novel and I was like, no, I, I don't mean I want to read. I want to read the first book of Dune. I said I want to read the first Dune book. And he's like, I don't understand how we are confusing each other here. It's a communication breakdown. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Frank Herbert. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Frank. It's extremely confusing. But yeah, it's like you said. It's split up into three parts, which are referred to within the novel as books. Um, although what I thought was weird about that is that they're, they're a really weirdly different length. Yeah. I mean, the first one is basically just entirely politics and world building. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the second and third book is kind of the meat of the story. Right. Um, but 
what I was going to mention before is that Dune Messiah uh, basically feels like a book for just a, a direct continuation of the first book, pretty much exactly where it leaves off and then continues kind of going into the character driven story that the later half of the book, uh, later half of Dune, the book mm -hmm. uh, sort of becomes. Right. And I guess after that, um, it, it kind of, I guess you could say it kind of goes like one of each because the first book, a lot of like a lot of world building i uh, i don't know which version of the book you guys have but mine is like 700 pages um let me double let's see here so mine um oh, i didn't even realize mine had a map in the back of it that's useful um let's see here mine is yeah just just shy of around 700 yeah yeah we probably have the same one then mm -hmm. um but yeah like i would say like half if not more of those 700 pages is just all world building and then the second book dune messiah uh is basically all character driven then you have the third book children of dune which is a lot more world building and then the fourth book god emperor of dune is all characters so it kind of goes on and off mm -hmm. and that's my final answer to seth's question <laughs> that was a good answer i learned a lot yeah definitely a lot of i can tell you've thought about this for a while jack dude i've had nothing but dune on the mind <laughs> <laughs> having I, I wouldn't say forced because i did enjoy reading the books that i did Mm -hmm. uh but i don't know i feel like i may have read them all in too short of a time if i'm being <laughs> honest too much uh too especially much. The, the third and fourth ones i read them back to back and that was a huge mistake <laughs> well, I, I, well, why why is that exactly dune overload, dune uh, overload. Mm, it's just dune yeah. overload especially uh the fourth book in particular god emperor of dune is very very different from the th three books that come before it um it's basically like fantasy philosophy mm -hmm. and it's like a 500 pages of just the god emperor of dune himself just waxing poetic about being the god emperor of dune <laughs> that sounds really challenging yes yeah. i mean it's definitely like I guess you could say the hardest of the series to read. Uh, mostly just because it is such a different format. You know, it, it's not just a straight sci-fi book. You know, sci-fi adventure like the first book is, for example. Uh, no, the, f the fourth book is very, very different. I gotta respect, yeah, really being able to willing to challenge the concept of what a novel is and what a narrative is. I think, uh, I think that's really funny. I mean, there, there's definitely still a narrative through it. You know, it's not just 500 pages of, of ranting and raving. Like, you know, they still explore the planet and there's characters and all that stuff, but there is a lot. And I mean, a lot of philosophical talk throughout that book. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you know, he kind of starts that in the first Dune. I mean, not not to the extent that you're describing, but I mean, there's a lot of philosophy present in in the first book of the series too. So you can tell that it's something Frank Herbert had thought a lot about. Um, I don't know. I was doing a little bit of research and um, I mean, he chose to write this story. So just, just to give the, our listeners a little bit of information, Dune as a and novel. We really haven't, we really haven't talked about Dune yeah. very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Don't worry. That's, that's pretty normal. Um, Dune uh, is a novel, uh, as I mentioned, written by a man named Frank Herbert, a real uh, American, uh, American author. It came out in 1965. Um, like a lot of other novels at the time, um, it actually wasn't written as a novel. It was written as a series of serials, which is probably why it's written. It's broken up into books like that. Um, let's see here. Um, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, Frank Herbert show was very interested in sort of like he had a shared interest both in the rise and fall of of historical empires and in the fact that there are several major world religions which began in desert areas and which feature messiah characters and so he was like why don't i write a story about a sort of stagnant empire and the rise of a messiah character within a sort of desert-like environment um also he super liked psilocybin um which is why he psychedelic chose... mushrooms yes psychedelic mushrooms that's cool uh, important clarification um so he chose to not only write a story about a stagnant uh, spacefaring civilization and a messiah character rising from from the sandy dunes of a of a desert planet but also everyone's whacked out on a psychedelic drug all the time um, and also they eat that, it yeah they they, they eat they it they just straight they... up eat drugs every day yeah. mhm that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, not just not just that, but also the drug is basically the universe's equivalent of oil. So, you you're not just eating it all the all day, but you're using it to transport yourself throughout the cosmos uh, at the same time. So, it's a cool stuff. But it's like only stuff. only certain people can help you transport yourself through the cosmos. It's very strange. And I don't know if you guys remember the uh the David Lynch version of the movie that we watched like over a year ago, I think at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the people that do the transporting, you know, the, the guild, the, the, the people that pilot the ships are like weird. Like, I don't even know what you would call them. Just like alien worm things and water tanks. Oh yeah. little fresh flesh creatures with big yeah. faces, right? Yeah, just a lot of weird flesh creatures in the Dune universe. So something that I think is important to mention is that, and and this is something that I, I think is super cool about the way Dune is written. I think a lot of science fiction um, is very obs- obsessed, maybe is the word I would use, with 
making sure the audience knows how far in the future the story is taking place and like how long it's going to take humanity to turn into whatever they're being described as in the story. Um, but Dune, it, it, Frank Herbert does not care about any of that. He does not. I mean, we have no idea how far in the future it is. We have no idea if like, like what sort of state earth is really, or what is going on at all. I mean, I don't think earth is even mentioned in the story, at least in the first one. Um, it's just there. It's some period in the future and things are really weird. And humans are extremely strange now, which I think is awesome. Uh, I think more stories should be willing to just make things incredibly, fantastically weird and just not explain them at all. Um, yeah, what's what's Earth doing in the Star Wars universe, <laughs> you think? <laughs> well, see, they get around that in Star Wars by saying it's not even our galaxy. So they don't need to they don't need to bother to explain it. But there are still humans for some reason. But in Dune, I mean, it. I guess, I guess it's not explicitly stated that the universe of Dune is, or like the galaxy that the events are taking place in, is our galaxy. But I think it's implied. At least, I, I assumed it, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I can't say I ever really gave that too much thought. But the idea that the spice melange exists somewhere out in the universe is very exciting. Yeah, I want some. <laughs> I've just been uh, I've just been injecting uh, boring old earth based oil as my drug of choice. Yeah, I've just uh, been I've just been eating spoonfuls of cinnamon. <laughs> kind of get the same effect. Yeah. <laughs> what if you tried mixing the cinnamon with the oil? Ooh, that's good. Can't say I've tried that yet. Just a little cinnamon, a little Brent crude, right into my eyeball. Yum, yum, yum. Oh, there you go. There you go. Does the does the oil and cinnamon mixture still turn your eyes blue? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's an incredibly toxic reaction. Yeah, it's fine. You will go blind. Yeah, but also grow a foot taller, question mark? Anyway, um, <laughs> I feel like we should talk about the narrative of the book Dune. Yes, I agree. Um, so... It begins the 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 book the book is primarily concerned with the event, with the experiences of a particular character. His name is Paul. Um, another thing I love about this book is that people some characters have extremely weird names and some characters have extremely normal names. So we have our main character whose name is Paul Atreides. His dad's name is Leto and his mom's name is Jessica. Uh, that's our, that's our family. That's our, our lovely, uh, sitcom family. Um, they are the rulers of the, of an ocean planet named Caladan. Caladan. is what I have written here. Yeah. Caladan's a wet planet. Yeah. Is it, now is it, is it an ocean planet or is it like more, is it, is it just like an earth type planet, right? That's just really what it's supposed I mean, to be. I guess I'm just basing it off of the uh, the 2021 movie that came out, and that one was pretty pretty wet, pretty ocean planet, lots of water on that planet. Uh, I don't think it's like Earth based. Mm -hmm. It's it's certainly more Earth like than some of the other like the other planet uh, that gets brought up later in the story. 
Mm-hmm. But I would like the way that they describe it, at least to me, it seemed like it was mostly just water. Yeah, they definitely stress in in the book that it's like boats are very important there. Yeah, that's true. They did mention that uh, like ocean power was a big source of the like military might of the the uh, of House Atreides, which is why they were kind of even though House Atreides has a lot of land troops, they were kind of at a disadvantage um, on on the the planet Arrakis, which is the the planet that Dune takes place primarily on. Uh, because there's no water at all, no surface water at all on uh, right. But you know, it, it, theoretically, let's say there there's a huge outbreak of war throughout the Dune universe. How many planets do you think the House Atreides would actually be able to use effectively with their ocean power? You know, that is an excellent question, and I do not know how prevalent ocean worlds are. Because, like. I don't know. I feel like every other planet you see in these books is either completely desert and there's no water anywhere or, I mean, in the movie anyway, the only other source of liquid is just human blood. Mm-hmm. It was so, also raining. Yeah, raining human blood probably. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know what? That might be true. So I just did a quick Google search. And Earth is the only known astronomical object that has large bodies of liquid water on its surface. Though there have been planets found with the right conditions to support liquid water. So as far as we know, Earth is fairly unique in that it has just a lot of water sitting around. So basically, House Atreides would be really good at defense in yeah. this war. Yeah, but you'd never pretty be able awful. To- <laughs> pretty awful at attacking other planets mm. mm-hmm. yeah well you know hey that kind of comes up uh well i guess they kind of suck at defense too though is the thing well they suck at defense because they don't they have, didn't boats. have their water <laughs> they don't have boats their water their water power isn't very effective in the sand mm. they tried though they brought the boats they just they just couldn't go anywhere <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, uh, Paul Atreides, he uh, is a is a cool dude. He's uh, is like, he? Well, I don't how how he's like fourteen. Start of the novel, too young, I think, or possibly slightly younger than that. Uh, he's not an old guy, is my point. Um, and his dad, you know, Grant, there's a there's a term that people use for that. It's called a teenager. Teen. Um, you know, uh, it's been a long day. I, <laughs> I, I, I just work. I worked a ten-hour shift. I worked a fifty-hour week. I, uh, I've. I, it's just been a long day, and so words are hard to use. Yeah, Grant, um, you should. You should have known better than to bring me on here and expect to not get shit on. <laughs> you know what? You're right. That's why. That's why I wanted you, Jack, because you keep me honest. Um. So yeah. Uh. Paul Atreides, his dad, Leto, is the Duke of House Atreides, ruler of the planet Caladan. Um, and he, his uh, Paul's dad, has just been told that he is being given the dukedom of Arrakis, which is simultaneously, in, in, the, in the novel at least, simultaneously a reward and also a severe punishment. Because... 
Arrakis is the only planet in the galaxy where spice, the spice melange that we mentioned before, uh, is found. And therefore, it's a source of immense wealth to control Arrakis. But it also makes you a target of everyone in the galaxy because everyone else wants access to spice for themselves. So it sucks to be Duke of Arrakis, and it also rocks. Um, but yeah, the big point is that Arrakis is vastly different than Caladan. And so House Atreides has to figure out how they're going to actually be able to rule Arrakis without immediately getting murdered by House Harkonnen, who are the former stewards of Arrakis and have been ousted by the emperor because they suck. Um, at least that's the explanation given basically to Leto and Paul, although we later find out that's not the full reason as to why the Harkonnens are no longer ruling Arrakis. You know, Grant, I just realized there's a there's a group of, of folks in the Dune universe that we haven't brought up yet. It might mm. be important. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to talk about eugenics? Um, and, and the Bene Gesserit? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, the novel opens with what I what I what is really interesting I think about Frank Herbert's writing style uh is that he does not shy away from just throwing a lot of terms and concepts that are unique to his particular science fiction universe right at you right out of the gate even though you have like no context for understanding any of this well you guys didn't know what a gom jabbar was <laughs> i didn't actually seth did you know what a gom jabbar was uh i've been a gom jabbar freak for quite a while but it did catch me by surprise <laughs> i thought i was the only one mm, there we go hey hey you know what we got two gom jabbar heads you know it, it was surprising i was I, I cracked open the book and like on page two i i see my favorite little poisonous needle. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, Frank Herbert really gets me. Mm. Yeah. Um, so in the, 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 um, the uh, empire, which it, it's not explicitly stated if the empire of humanity that in, in this novel has a particular unique name, it's just always called the empire or whatever. Um, has a sort of like I'm trying to think of how to how to phrase them. They the empire has within it a group of basically witches who manipulate everything behind the scenes in order to marry certain bloodlines together with the goal of eventually creating the perfect person who is simultaneously like a, like a incredibly strong and resilient but also has incredible psychic power and potential uh and then they would just like rule the cosmos with this particular individual um there are, are different names for it um in 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 the universe I'm trying to I I for some reason didn't write it down what was what was the Fremen name or the, the, the residents of Dune would call him a, a, the Kwisatz Haderach, but what was the Bene Gesserit name for it? I don't it was remember. The same. Was it the same one? Um, 
I felt like there was a different. Uh, I'm gonna look it up. Well, no, because remember the Bene Gesserit implanted the idea of the. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. So. Quisatz Hatterach. I just Hatterach. said it. Listen, Grant. Uh, b- but they implanted the idea of, you know, this figure into the Fremen society uh, as part of their goal to, you know, establish this person that they eventually want to create by mixing all these bloodlines together uh, so that they could take control of the planet Arrakis when they arrive. Right, yes. So, yes, Kwisatz Haderach is the Bene Gesserit term. Um, so, yeah, like like we just said, their goal is to make this perfect person, and... I mean, they're essentially God. Yeah, they are They are almost literally playing God. The, they're, it, it's revealed, not even that far into the novel, uh, that the Bene Gesserit are knowingly manipulating everything with the goal of producing this person. And their plan to create this person is like eons long. They are, they have been waiting for a long time and they have everything mapped out to a T as to how to create this individual. Um, And of course, so it being an, it being a novel that presents us with the main character, it's, it's implied pretty much right out of the gate that Paul has the potential to be uh, a, the Quisatz Hatterach. Yeah, that's like page um, five. Yeah, it's like right away they're like, they're like, whoa, Paul, you might be the most powerful person in existence. And he's like, oh, that's kind of cool, I guess. Which All is right. funny because in both of the movie adaptations, that scene happens like 20, 30 minutes into it. Mm-hmm. But it's literally the first thing you see and read in the novel. <laughs> The, Frank Herbert wanted you to understand that he was making a messiah. He was writing a messiah novel, and he didn't want there to be any confusion about that. Um, yeah, so uh, the Bene Gesserit, uh, they want to test Paul right out of the gate to, to see if he is... They have a really weird way of phrasing it. They want to test to see if he's human, because... Humans are different than people or something. That is um, honestly never really explained. Yeah, I don't know. It's really weird, and I can't really explain what they mean by that. But uh the test, it's a pretty it's pretty famous. I feel like a lot of it's it's been sort of spoofed or adapted into various different formats over the years and has been has been featured, but it's a test where Paul puts one hand inside a box and then the gamja bar, which is a needle with poison on it, is held up to his neck. And if he pulls his hand out of the box, he'll be stabbed with the poison and die almost immediately. Uh, but as long as his hand is in the box, he will undergo increasing excruciating pain. Um, Very the, spooky, painful box. Yeah, spooky pain box. Um, so, it probably has a cool name, but spooky pain box is <laughs> um, pretty close. The gamja bar is the needle, but the uh, yeah, the the box is not ever. Yeah, I don't know. Now that now that you mention it, it's weird that the box is not named. Out of all the things to not have a cool name in this book, 
It's the spooky pain box. Sometimes you just forget. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so Paul passes the test. He surpasses more pain than anyone else. Um, he's definitely a human. And whatever probably, that means. Yeah, and it's probably the Kwisatz Haderach. And then they leave Caladan and they go to Dune. Or they go to Arrakis. Uh, I just call it Dune because it's kind of confusing. But um, just trying to make it as confusing as possible. Yeah the 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 planet in the novel Dune is not called Dune. It is called Arrakis. It is called the novel is called Dune because there are sand dunes in the novel, and sand is a major component. Kind of a Frankenstein's monster situation. Sand exists in this book. <laughs> Um, so once getting to Arrakis, like, do you guys want to talk about kind of what, how their various, I'm trying to think of how, like, how is Arrakis described really? Like, what is, what is it like as a, as a planet, as a population of people? Like, how, how does it kind of compare to... Well, I guess what a trade the House of Trades is depicted as being used to. It's definitely not as wet. Um, <laughs> a lot of sand. A lot of sand. There's like essentially one city that's like the cosmopolitan center. It's where all the business happens. Does it have right. a name? Uh, it does. Eric Eric Erekeen. And that's where the that's where our uh, folks set up shop, um, but it's also inhabited by, uh, like I guess essentially an indigenous group, who are the Fremen, who are I I want to say, um, so thinly veneered, just kind of based on like Arabic peoples, and a lot of uh, sci-fi fantasy does this where. They essentially just rename a different culture group and give them all their like customs and stuff. Um, right. But it's kind of comical. <laughs> what I what I think is interesting about uh, about the way Dune approaches it is that, and, and this is not a new point, but Dune is is interesting because it is at its core a story about like a family of white people showing up on a, in a extremely sandy environment and inserting themselves into an indigenous population and then essentially just taking, taking them over and leading them. Um, sort of like yeah, a, but almost a, but they're cool with it though. Yeah. Yeah. But they're like super chill with it yeah, and I think, think it's, it's awesome. But the empire, which I didn't mention this before, the empire is also, uh, has a lot of like Arabic tone, like tones to it in the way that it's it's talked about. Like the emperor's name, he is referred to as the Padishah Emperor Shaddam the Fourth. Um, and it's which, sort of which is kind of funny mm -hmm. because everybody else in that family uh, doesn't have like Middle Eastern sounding names. Yeah, uh, no, that's true. In later books, especially uh, more of the house corino which their name gets brought up like once at the very beginning of the first book mm -hmm. and you kind of just forget that, that house exists but they're like the biggest house because they are the house that rules over the empire mm -hmm. 
Um, but the emperor in the first book is the only person with a, you know, Arabic sounding name. Mm. Maybe uh, it makes it sound like maybe Frank Herbert changed his mind uh, later on about wanting the the so so many Arabic to- uh, overtones in this series. But uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I, I just thought it was worth noting that the that the, the whole story is very heavy very heavily sort of um uh, injected for lack of a better term with uh sort of muslim terminology muslim theming arabic terminology arabic theming um yeah even though it's written by like i said an american guy named frank um yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I like I said, he before he was very interested in the sort of demise of historical empires and uh also like doing a lot of mushrooms. So maybe there's something there. I don't know. <laughs> um so getting back on to the actual uh thing we were talking about, what is what is sort of what it like the defining characteristic of Arrakis besides the fact that it's covered in sand? Well, the sand itself contains the spice. The spice. Right? The spice melange. Yeah. I don't know why that's so fun to say. <laughs> but uh, because the sand, which covers the entire planet, as it's mentioned in the book, contains the spice, the entire planet is essentially focused on the industry of extracting the spice to then use for themselves, sell it to others, such as the, you know, the Merchants Guild and the Spacing Guild, uh, and then they will export it from Arrakis throughout the entire known empire mm-hmm. for everyone else to use. And it it basically becomes uh, the House Atreides' responsibility to oversee this operation on arrakis but the problem is when they get there they realize that all of the equipment that they use to do this operation to extract it from the sand uh, has been left in horrible states of disrepair by the family that was there before the harkonnens right right uh seth what do you think of this horrible act of treachery by house harkonnen uh, you know, I think it's terrible. I denounce all their actions. Um, but I couldn't see a more predictable thing coming. Um, every description of the Baron Harkonnen is insanely funny. How he just embodies, I think, literally every sin they they cover. <laughs> he's like corpulently obese. Um, he's uh he's a pervert. He's, yep. um, I don't know. He just is engages in every uh, hedonistic act one can imagine, and he's also not very nice. Baron Harkonnen is basically a Saturday morning cartoon villain. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Actually, that is a that is a good point. I hadn't even really thought about the fact that Leto Atreides, uh, the Duke Leto, is is portrayed as being you know he's tall, handsome. 
He's got a, a big scruffy beard. Uh, he's great in martial combat. He uh, he can't marry his beloved for political reasons, but he still refuses to take a wife, even though he could, because he's remaining true to his concubine, uh, Jessica, who's Paul's mom. Um, and then, yeah, and then Bar- Baron Harkonnen is depicted as being the exact opposite of every single one of those traits. Um, and yeah, they don't like each other. I guess just kind of touching on the on the movie adaptations too, it's really funny the comparison between the 80s version and the 2020s version of Baron Harkonnen, the character. Because Baron Harkonnen in the David Lynch version of Dune is like, he's a clown yeah he's the funniest mm. character i think i've ever seen in any movie ever uh and then the 2020s version tried to make him a lot more serious which is actually kind of departing from the source material because baron harkonnen is like a caricature of a character yeah he's a goofball mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean he almost uh yeah, Baron Baron Harkonnen is is depicted. Frank Herbert goes out of his way to make him make him seem extremely gross. Yeah, to the point that you you almost feel like you're not supposed to take it seriously. But at the same time, I will say that he is easily the most entertaining character in the entire book. I couldn't wait to get back to the Harkonnen scenes while I was reading this book because he was just so entertaining to read. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I, I, I had, I had that thought throughout a lot of the book. Um, th- it's a very entertaining book to read. Um, we've we've read so we've read a couple books. Uh, we started with Ready Player One, which was not as entertaining to read. Um, but I was enthralled. You sound so dejected. Well. Uh. We 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 spent a whole episode on Ready Player One. I'm not going back to it, but uh, Dune, I was like sucked in. I was super into it, and then I, all I want to do is talk talk about it with people after I after I finished it. I do have to say though, uh, the main characters being, I would say anyway. Uh, Paul and Jessica kind of both at the same time more emphasis on Paul but Jessica is definitely like a second string protagonist throughout the first book mm-hmm. um I thought they were really boring I yeah. thought the I thought pretty much every character in the house Atreides that wasn't Leto Atreides was just incredibly boring yeah I um I think when I first read Dune many years ago uh, and that was, I think, one of the things I like least about it is like, uh, it's like Paul, too young, he's a teen, don't care, always has these weird visions where he understands what it means to be um, the sand or whatever. Uh, he doesn't really <laughs> develop in any way that isn't mystical. Not my favorite. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a really funny scene, kind of like a third of the way into the book. I think it's the kind of the climax of the first book within the first novel dune that's never not going to be confusing (laughs) but there is just a scene where paul just becomes jesus 
just out of the blue, yeah. he overdoses on sand and is suddenly Jesus. Maybe that's what happened to our guy Frank. Hey, you know, actually, good point. He's like, you just take a hallucinogen and you become a completely different and better person. But no, yeah, even... No, mean... oh, you go ahead, Grant. Uh, I was just going to say, the book does basically have the message that taking uh, hardcore hallucinogens makes you a better individual in all aspects of your life. And we endorse I that mean, message. I mean, even if it's not... Even if it's not true, you know, if you do enough hallucinogens, you could also become Jesus. <laughs> That's not off the table. That's true. You know what? That actually is true. Um, so uh, what I wanted to make sure we talked about was just yeah, kind I of think, like... I think we both missed the mark. I think Seth and I failed here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is, well, I just kind of wanted to focus on like how, (laughs) what, what is the defining, what I think is the defining characteristic of Arrakis is not the fact that it's necessarily covered in sand, not the fact that it, it is, it produces spice. That is literally the only defining characteristic of the planet. It's not just covered in sands, Jack. It's also covered in big ass worms. Oh, I forgot about the worms. <laughs> I read and four the, books about worms and I forgot worms, about the worms. The worms, especially given that you've read the other books, Jack, the worms are the most important part of Dune. But Grant, are these worms I might be familiar with? Are these little guys I might put on a hook to catch a fish? Oh. Seth, I'm glad you asked. No, they're not. They're humongous. They're the biggest worms you could ever imagine and then make them even bigger. Oh, frick. Yeah, it's based on that episode of SpongeBob. Yep. Yep. The Alaskan bullworm came out first, and then Frank Herbert was like, oh, shit. And then that's Frank a big Herbert, worm. after taking a bunch of psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms, was like, whoa. <laughs> I have an idea for a book. <laughs> I'm going to write. I'm going to write several serials about <laughs> big-ass worms. Send them into Playboy magazine. <laughs> they'll, they'll print them. They're desperate for content. Um, Yeah, sandworms are like the... I don't know if I... Well, no, I'll call them the dominant life form on Arrakis. They're big. Uh, they can eat anything. They are immediately summoned by any movement on uh, the sand, and they also are involved in the spice process through ways that are that are uh, illuminated in the book, which are very weird. And I almost and I don't want to say what they are just because I want people to actually read them for themselves because they're very strange. But it's so funny. How can we not mention it? Ah, whatever. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jack. No. <laughs> that's on you grant you get to say it all right um so my understanding from reading the book was that spice is basically worm poop uh fermented that, worm poop yeah it's it's worm poop that's been left to ferment under the sand until it explodes and then it and then the exploded poop is is spice which people then eat and it makes them trip out it's kind of like composting that, yeah 
you know, <laughs> there you go. See, Seth, you're always there with a positive way to, to look at things, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, composting is basically making spice in Dune. Yeah, that's what that's what sandworms are for, and also uh, they're a really neat form of transportation. Um, that's also cool. They do that in the book. Yeah, but the who end. who uses them as transportation? Grant the Fremen, the indigenous people of uh, Arrakis. They live in the desert. They do. They, I mean, they sort of. I wouldn't say worship the worms, but they sort of ho- like hold them in very, very high spiritual regard. Yeah. Well, they refer to the worms as makers. At least that was my understanding. Uh, they also use the word makers sometimes to refer to like some sort of god character. Um, but several times in the book, they refer to baby worms as little makers. So, yeah, actually, maybe they do worship the worm now that I think about it. Um, cause they use the same term both for their God and for the sandworms themselves. Um, so yeah, uh, they have developed the ability to ride worms. The Fremen are, we mentioned them earlier. They're this indigenous group that lives on, on Arrakis, but they're also like the coolest people in existence. They're the best fighters. They ride big giant worms. Um, they uh, get to drink their own pee and poop whenever they want, which I guess is pretty cool. Um, In fact, they, they have to, to survive. Yeah. Through the still suits, I think they're called. The the magical technology suits that transform all of their bodily fluids, including their poop and their pee, into drinkable water so that they can survive out in the harsh deserts yeah frank pays so much attention to the fremen drip he describes this this the still suits uh in so much detail he like details where in the suit the poop is stored like i was thinking really hard about how uh he would survive in a desert if he had to well i why can i just i have this image in my head of him at like a drawing board one single desk lamp over over his head and he's just like crumpling up paper and throwing it over his shoulder and it's like this doesn't make any sense the 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 readers they're not gonna understand what's going on in a still suit unless i can figure out where the poop goes yeah he's imagining a a prospective reader just like reading through the book but uh after the still suit concept is explained is just like racked with the intrusive thought but where does the poop go (laughs) and unfortunately Neither of the movie adaptations ever touch on this topic. Cowards. Yeah, the movies skip over the the movies. Just they talk about sweat, but they skip over poop. And I don't think the most recent one talked about pee. The Dune, the the David Lynch one might have. I don't remember off the top of my head. But neither of them are willing to deal with the fact that you're also that every single character in the novel Dune. When they are in the desert and they're doing whatever they're doing, be it fighting guys or delivering dialogue, is also just shit in their pants. And you know, God bless. <laughs> they're more free than, than us. Yeah, I think that's really brave. Yeah, yeah, they're truly, they've reached the pinnacle of society. Um, are, is it, are, do the Fremen have like, 
Are they in their still suits even when they're not out in the desert? I don't remember if it was ever touched on if they have like a different style of clothing. Well, you know, it's kind of jumping ahead in the story. I don't know how closely we're going to be following the script of the of the story eh. here, but when uh when Paul and Jessica first arrive at the the Fremen uh compound, they again, Frank kind of goes off and describes the number and the intensity of the smells that assault their noses. Mm-hmm. And they do or Frank does mention that they just have a big old compost pit where I think that's where all the Fremen of the compound do their business. Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. but they don't mention other articles of clothing. I'm pretty sure they just wear their still suits 24-7. Why wouldn't you? Gotta save that water. Exactly. I mean, it's the most efficient clothing you could probably mm-hmm. wear. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's true. Um, We're coming up on an hour, which is generally about how long we like to make these so that our, our uh, delightful audience can easily consume these episodes. So I want to make sure we just sort of touch on a couple major plot points that I think we should make sure are mentioned. Uh, we may, we've talked about House Harkonnen. We've talked about Baron Harkonnen, who is the leader of House Harkonnen. Uh, he was originally the Baron of... Uh, Arrakis, he, we find out, has manipulated events behind the scenes to lead to him losing control of Arrakis and uh, House Atreides gaining control of it. And he almost immediately stabs him in the back uh, because he hates House Atreides and really wants to destroy Who them. could have seen yeah. this coming? <laughs> it's an obvious trap. And Leto Atreides even says that it's a trap and he still... They talk about it constantly. ...is surprised Just by like- it. They are constantly talking, uh, like, when they first arrive on the planet, and they see, like I had mentioned before, all the equipment and stuff that's in uh, just total disrepair. It's all total crap, and he's just like, wow, we have been set up. Well, they talk about... Some bad stuff is about to go down. They talk about before they even leave. Uh, Caladan is, is, is... Leto talks about how... Uh, there's no no reason at all for him to be granted a boon from the emperor because the emperor doesn't even really like him that much. Yeah, uh, he's truly just like <laughs> I think this is a trap. I suspect we're gonna beef it on the sand planet, but I guess I have to go. Like it's it is kind of a weird thing because like you know uh, the House Atreides and Leto Atreides in particular is sort of portrayed as very noble and all that, but. They don't seem very popular. No, everyone hates them. <laughs> Honestly, they're haters. If you see someone who's got a really cool wet planet, who's really nice, and every, all their soldiers really like them, you're going to be jealous. You're going to want to see them uh, taken down a peg. So I get it. Yeah, you know, it makes sense when you think about it that way. You really just got to cut people down to size. Uh, Leto was just getting too big for his britches. Too proud. Uh, and what happens to Leto Grant? Uh, Leto uh, gets well. I, I he he technically does not get killed. Um, he is betrayed by his doctor, a guy named Yue, 
uh, who is being manipulated by Baron which, Harkonnen. Which isn't, which isn't spoilers, by the way, because the book just flat out mm-hmm. stated in the second chapter, yes. hey, Dr. Yue is going to betray the House Atreides. Yeah, there's very little that is subtle in this book. You are given... Subtle... Subtlety doesn't exist in the Dune universe. <laughs> like I, like we talked about earlier, you are told flat out at the beginning of the book that Paul is the Messiah. He is the Kwisatz Haderach. He is the coolest guy in the world. He's the coolest guy in the universe. And you are also told pretty much the first time you see Dr. Yue that he is going to betray House Atreides. And it's just the rest of the characters that don't know that. Uh, which in a lot of ways almost makes a, the rest of the novel really annoying because there's one there's it, one it's frustrating there's one character who up until like very near the end of the book continues to think that someone completely different betrayed house atreides that is kind of cool in in that sense but like it's just so strange that frank would go ahead and just say outright hey here's who did it before even doing the betrayal and it's like the plot line that's that sort of precedes it and the whole reasoning for dr ua's betrayal it's interesting it's actually really an interesting plot point and it would have been nice to not know who the betrayer was up until that point because it would have made the reveal a lot more impactful right right which is something the both movies have uh left well not necessarily to the same extent, but both movies have tried to make the the traitor reveal an actual reveal, which I think is something it's interesting. The novel does not do that. And the movies have felt like they've needed to make that more suspenseful. Um, it's almost it's almost like that makes for a better story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So Leto, uh, UA hates Baron Harkonnen, so he convinces Leto to uh, put a basically a poison pill in his mouth that when he bites down on it, he will be able to breathe poison into Baron Harkonnen's face. And then even though Leto will die, the Baron will also die. Uh, Leto tries to do it. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, I mean, it kind of like a quarter of the way works, but uh, the Baron doesn't die. It gets his, it gets his henchmen. Yeah. It gets it gets his lackey, but it does not get the Baron. Uh, but Leto still dies. Uh, he goes out. I guess I guess at least he's trying to do something. But um, yeah, Leto's cool. Uh, I was very sad. I liked. He died. I liked Leto. He was. A, he's a neat guy. Um, yeah, and then and Paul and Jessica. The their whole the Arakeen is attacked by Harkonnen troops, reinforced by Jack mentioned uh, them earlier. The Emperor sends his elite uh, shock troops, the Sardaukar, um, who are basically almost almost described as, like, Vikings, essentially. Like, they're just, like, a barbarian horde that is uh, pretty nasty, and uh, they're, they're meant to just rampage through whatever they're trying to destroy. Um, yeah, and, and so they show up, they kill all the, kill most of the Atreides soldiers, and there we go, in one fell swoop, the Harkonnens have, uh, Arrakis back, and House Atreides is believed dead, except Paul and Jessica don't die, they escape. Gasp. Gasp. 
Oh, and we haven't even talked. We have got to mention there are several characters. Uh, we've talked about how there are characters who have extremely normal names, like Paul and Jessica. There are characters who have more interesting names, like Leto or uh, Shaddam the Fourth. And then there are characters who have completely batshit names, like my favorite one, and uh, Jack and Seth, I'm sure he's your favorite too, Duncan Idaho. Yeah, Duncan's pretty cool. Um, although it's kind of just two pretty normal, a normal name and a normal place. Uh, you stick them together, all of a sudden, pretty zany. Yeah, or uh, Gurney Halleck, which I think is also a very silly name. Yeah. Duncan Idaho, I always come back to, though, because I'm just not really sure why Frank Herbert decided to put those two names together. Grant, if you had to come up with a fantasy name right here on the spot, what would it be? Uh, Frank Herbert. Oh, crap. Um, <laughs> that's, ar- it's, in, that's already uh, used. That's, uh, in the that's Wheel copywritten. of Time series, uh, he makes a, a fantasy name by just sticking an apostrophe in the middle of the name Randall. So you can really do anything you want. <laughs> so it's just like Randall. <laughs> yeah, Randall. Um, I love that. I think that is actually very funny. Grant, you forgot to mention uh, Thufir Hawat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's my Thufir. favorite. Uh, he's um, what they call a mentat, which is basically a person with extreme intelligence and psychological ability, um, psychic ability. Um, and they also eat a lot of spice. Yum. Yum, yum. Eat too much spice, you can start reading minds. Mm-hmm. It's a very important skill. Uh, everybody's got a mentat. Uh, again, they mentioned this really early on, but the reason why Paul is so special is because he is a kind of a mentat, except for they don't know that, or like other people don't know that, but he and his mom do. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Um, well, one of the one of the reasons why he is assumed to be uh, the the god figure is because he has the mentat abilities or at least the potential for the mentat abilities uh, but then also receives in secret the trainings of the Bene Gesserit from his mother and it's those two powers combined that sort of elevate him to the godhood status right because the Bene Gesserit have an ability we haven't mentioned which is certain members can use what they call the voice, which is the ability to basically mind control people uh, with your words. Uh, Jessica can do it. She teaches Paul how to do it. Um, I don't know if it's stated that all Bene Gesserit can do it, but at least certain members can. I think it's I think it's implied that it's a part of their training. It's just whether or not they are good at it is kind of the mm-hmm. determining factor. Right, right. And Jessica is just like supposed to be really good Crazy. at it. That's why she's that's why she's so cool. Crazy good at telling people what to do. Um Yeah, so Paul Paul has this has the voice and he's also got the mentat abilities, which is what makes him the the Quisats Hatterack. Um it, I'm trying to think uh there oh Baron Harkonnen's first name is Vladimir, which is 
simultaneously silly, but also a normal name. Pretty funny. Uh, this is thank you, Seth, uh, for offering your your vote. Uh, that that name is. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So, uh, we haven't got. There's a ton of novel still that we have not talked about. I mean, part of the reason why this book is so famous and so well regarded, I feel, is because you know the book is 700 pages, which is a, it's long, but it's also incredibly dense you know there's so there's a ton of stuff to just unpack in in in, in this one book you know that there there's six of them i think in the in the frank herbert saga because well there's six that frank herbert himself wrote uh when he passed away his son took over and now there's like 30 dune novels yeah i was actually in barnes and noble the other day and weirdly uh, the only Dune novels they had were like the Brian Herbert ones. They had Dune, the first one, but then they didn't have uh, like Children of Dune, Dune Messiah, uh, but they had all of the Brian Herbert ones, which I thought was really which, weird. Which uh can't really speak for them myself, but I've heard they are not as good. <laughs> Well, you try uh, replicating your father's mu- like mu- like mushroom trips. Maybe it's that's hard. the secret. Maybe Brian Herbert just simply isn't taking as much her- uh, as much psychedelic mushrooms as Frank did. <laughs> that's got to be it. So- someone get him on the horn. Someone tell him we figured it out. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's so. What are sort of your your guys's final final thoughts? Because I feel like we. We basically describe the events of book one, but like we said, there is a lot more that happens. Which is actually kind of funny and somewhat fitting because that's where the recent movie actually ends as well. Mm-hmm. Very uh, good point. Basically, basically everything that we've described is the first half, even though like in the book it's technically the first third, mm-hmm. but it feels like the first half because I guess to go into my thoughts about the book as a whole sure it's good i like dune uh i don't think that the second half of dune is very good it doesn't hold up nearly as well as the first half does yeah seth do you do you agree with that um yeah that's probably true i think the first time i read dune i did i got i made it like 90 percent of the way through and i was just like i don't feel like finishing this book i kind of just <laughs> wanted to end here uh but yeah so it'll be interesting to see where uh the next movie takes it yeah i i think jack you're exactly right i mean like i i agree with you completely i was super enthralled in the first part of the book even though i had already seen the movie which uh, the most recent film and the David Lynch one um, in the eighties, which do a pretty good job of, of hitting all the high notes. I still was like really into the first half of the book. And it's not that I wasn't into the second half. I just, the second half, I feel like the pacing we talk, you and I have talked about this out, outside of the show, uh, Jack, but the pacing of the David Lynch Dune movie is very weird because that movie is like three quarters of it are book one of Dune. 
And then the last quarter, last third, roughly, is the second two books. Um, and so the pacing is very strange. Um, and and honestly, the pacing of Dune the novel is also very strange. Yeah, I, I was going to mention, uh, just based off of the first half of the 2021 Dune movie that came out, uh, the David Lynch version is actually much more accurate to the book than anything that we saw in the most recent version. Which is very strange to say because I had always heard from, you know, film buffs, I guess you could call them, that the David Lynch Dune just wasn't that good. But when we watched it, uh, you know, us as a, as a group, mm-hmm. I think we all kind of came away from it being like, yeah, that was a pretty good movie. But that second half, though. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what happened? What? Why? Why did it suddenly like go from zero to a hundred? Got a lot of stuff to fit in, you know. But the, at the same time though, the book is pretty much the same way, you know. Despite the fact that the second and third books take up like a vast majority, I would say of the of the novel, nothing really happens. Yeah. Well, and I, I think a lot of stuff sort of happens off screen in the in the back half of the book too like there will be points where it's just sort of mentioned in passing like oh the fremen raids on the harkonnens are are continuing successfully and we're really making them angry but we don't ever see any of those they just sort of are happening um and paul just continues to keep growing in power and getting handsomer and stronger by the day um so i like, just remembered uh paul's child that he has in the first novel oh yeah just dies off screen yeah spoilers jack but oh, yeah man. uh uh his son leto two leto the second uh dies off screen it's just casually mentioned that his son was murdered leto two the the first actually <laughs> oh no because uh later in the series paul has another son mm-hmm. that he also names leto the second well there well tech i mean well i don't know if that's fair to call him leto the second but sure all right fine leto two the second <laughs> basically there's two leto twos except one of them dies like mm-hmm. pretty much as soon as he was introduced to it was very shortly after yeah um yeah i my final thoughts which i've i guess i've kind of touched on but i really liked it i thought i thought it was a super good book i think it's a book that everyone who's interested in science fiction should read uh it really deserves its spot as 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 a classic of the genre but it also deserves its spot as a book that is widely regarded as extremely weird um and i can't Say if you should read any of the other books in the series because I haven't read them. Uh, I don't know if I would characterize Jack as having given a, endor- a, a, a very proud endorsement of the rest of the series. Let me talk more about that after Seth gives his impressions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna say too much. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you guys are bigger Dune guys than I am. 
Um, but I, you're not a a dune head. I'm not, I'm not a dune head per se. I will say the, the, I think the world building is very special. I like it. I think it's fun. End of thoughts. Mm, That works. I mean, truth be told, you know, I, I guess I need to preface this again by saying that I enjoyed the books. I don't think Frank Herbert is a very good writer, (laughs) (laughs) but he has so many ideas. Like, I've mentioned this before to other people, but it's like Dune has such great ideas and Frank Herbert manages to tell one of the worst stories possible with those ideas. <laughs> yeah, sometimes a guy is just Jesus. I like the book. I also dislike the book. It's a very odd relationship. Yeah, I think that fits in, though, with kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, with that everyone sort of has their breaking point on the Dune series, where they're kind of like, I'm sick of this. <laughs> I don't, I'm not having fun reading these anymore, and I just want to stop. And so, yeah, on that topic then, where should you stop with Dune? <laughs> uh, personally... I stopped after the fourth book, which is, from what I had heard going into the series, that's sort of when Frank Herbert's six novels start to just kind of drop in quality. Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about the fifth or the sixth book, uh, but you know, I had just heard from fans of the series that four is just a really good stopping point. And so that's where I did it, because, uh, you know... Both Seth and Grant know that my tolerance for just weird nonsense in in writing and fiction and anything really is mm. higher than average. <laughs> yeah, that would be true. So I was I was definitely willing to stick it out and, you know, get to kind of the quote unquote official stopping point if you don't want to read all six of them. <laughs> but for you, Grant, in particular, since you seem to have really enjoyed the first book, you should definitely pick up the second one. Uh, Dune Messiah is actually my favorite of the four that I read. Oh, all right. Okay. I'll, I'll have to do that. And, which is funny because it's a book all about Paul, uh, who in the first novel was easily my least favorite character. <laughs> mm-hmm. I dislike Paul Atreides quite a lot, but the second book and just the way that it's written and the kind of conflicts that come up in the book are very interesting and make you sort of, you know, make you sort of more sympathetic towards Paul's character and the position that he ends up in at the end of the book, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting. Again, it's sort of more of a philosophical take on the dune uh, universe and the dune franchise but it's less so than the fourth book i would say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i would say the you grant could probably stop at the second book because there is very little reason to read the third book if you're not going to read the fourth Uh, all right that's a good roadmap then the third Uh... book introduces an entirely new set of characters that end up going nowhere <laughs> uh, and whose plot and whose plots are not resolved until the fourth book. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. That sounds annoying. Um, 
And it sounds to me like Seth is uh, pretty firmly in the, I'm just going to read Dune. Seth can stay where he is. Yeah. Uh, You know, if if he's not a Dune head, if he's not... If he's not a big Frank Herbert stan, then, you know, reading the first book is perfectly fine. It's okay. You know, I, sh- I, should, I should mention that, that, you know, just reading the first book, totally fine. It's fine uh, I would normal. say It's what most people fine. do. <laughs> yeah, I would say 90% of all people that have read Dune stop after the first book, which is what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone that I talked to, that you know even people that said that they were big fans of dune only read the first book and so you know that is perfectly viable it's what 90 percent of people do uh i don't think the first book has a particularly good ending Mm -hmm. which is why i would say that if you like the first book you should read the second one because it has a lot more closure to the story of paul atreides i think that's I think that's my kind of endorsement for the second book. Like it actually wraps up the story as opposed to just stopping Mm -hmm. like the first book does. Right. Because it doesn't really have an ending. It just sort of stops. Yeah. It does just kind of, it's, it is just kind of like book done and you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, okay. Well, Hey, um that's our thoughts on dune podcast uh um if if you guys have anything else that you want to add uh any any last quick quick little tidbits you want to give the audience um it's secret seek jack do you have any hacks as to how to enjoy dune the best uh do you do a microdose lsd beforehand or i just Sat down on my couch and read the books. Ah, there you go. <laughs> you know uh, the the, the easiest way to consume the Dune novels is to just read. Mm. Uh, that, that's my that's I my pro tip. About, I hadn't thought about that, but you know, I guess. I mean, I, su- do it. I suppose you know if 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 you really think that doing some psychedelic mushrooms <laughs> to really get into the headspace of Frank Herbert, you know, is going to enhance your experience, then by all means, Grant. <laughs> well maybe hey maybe i'll try that for next time um seth do you have a, anything anything final you want to add uh nope all right well that i had is... something oh sure, <laughs> you skipped me grant oh sorry <clears throat> beef swelling beef swelling oh, yeah.